crack Parmalat per i 12 Galletto Tanti di Sapeto. Avete avuto una perfetta conoscenza di tutti i meccanismi This is Death by DVD, and you are listening to the smooth sounds of Hank. You're aware of Return of the Jedi. You've heard about the Return of the King, and you might even remember the Return of Swamp Thing. But what do you know about the return of I, Alexander Nash? My best friend and yours, he's back. The man behind the mask. And he's out of control. Uh, I'm out of quarantine, at least. He's out of quarantine. He's back. Yeah, it's not, it's not as catchy, but you get the I point. I am no longer COVID positive, so I guess that's positive. I'm so happy you're back. It's been miserable talking to myself. I had to do Christmas all alone, which... It's just like a real Christmas, all alone. <laughs> Depression jokes. But it's this is the first show of the year. It's 2020. We are returning to classic Death by DVD. I, Alexander Nash, is back. It's a whole new year. And what makes this year great, despite the fact that you were formerly riddled with plague, as is most of the United States, it's the fact that we continue. We're here, and we're, uh, we're just not going to stop. You can't kill either of us, apparently. Oh, it was a ride, man. Let me tell you about it. I didn't even have COVID particularly bad. I had mild symptoms. The wife, she got pretty fucking sick. Not deathly ill, but she had like hardcore flu symptoms for about two weeks of, you know, the body aches, the mucus buildup, the nasal stuff, all that. Uh, Headache, not sleeping well, all that kind of stuff. I, however, just had fatigue. And random fatigue at that. I've been fighting this off since the end of November, where basically I had three days where I just didn't want to get out of bed. All I could do was sleep, couldn't wake up. And then I felt good. I felt good for about a week. And then I had fatigue again for a couple of days and brain fog. And then I felt good. And then back to fatigue again after a couple of days. So it's just, and I still, to this day, a month later, will randomly have a horrible fatigue day where I just can't function i just have to sleep as much as i possibly can to the point of where like i can't keep my eyes open uh the other day i made my wife get off the couch because i was just like can you go sit over there so i can lay down and i immediately fell asleep for like the next two hours and up until like a what a couple weeks ago i was feeling mostly okay it was just some fatigue days and then one random saturday i went fucking eight ship crazy and I was shivering, freezing, every muscle and joint in my body hurt. I laid there in bed and moaned. It was so For... bad. You texted me and said that you thought the Suspiria remake was better than the original movie. I thought you were dying. I would never say that, you asshole. You were so insane. I mean, that's the fever, really. Yeah, you never said that, but... That's what I'm saying. The, the, the symptoms are, like, so all over the place because I had... 
we, me and my wife had completely different symptoms. After two weeks, she was like golden. She was pretty much okay. She still gets a little bit of fatigue every once in a while, but I still get way more fatigued than her. And I had that one day where I felt like I was dying, but I never got a fever. I had all the symptoms of feeling like I had a fever, but that, and, but all I did was sleep it off. 17 hours later, I felt fine again. And then a couple of days ago, same deal, had a fatigue day. So that's the thing. It might not constantly fuck with you, but it's not over. Even when you think it's over, it comes roaring back on you. And on the same token, the wife works at a hospital, and she can tell you it's fucking deadly. They're losing four or five people every day, and this is not like a major metropolitan hospital. This is not like Brooklyn. This is a fairly small hospital of like a of a city of maybe of like a you know like a, a of an area of like maybe and when i'm saying area i'm talking about like a hundred mile radius of like sixty thousand people in a hundred mile that's what this hospital operates under and they're getting about five people a day that are dying some people are in their 40s it's mostly 40s and up people who are like succumbing and dying to the disease but and they're getting blood clots in their lungs they're getting all kinds of crazy symptoms so it's it's not just like you get the flu, you get over it, and if you're young, you'll be okay. You never fucking know what you're going to get at what age. There's, uh, what was it, like a 13-year-old kid died a couple weeks ago, just randomly died, and he had maybe a pre-existing condition. I think he had diabetes in it, but still, it's like, you're just going to sacrifice? He's young, he'll get over it. Well, apparently he fucking didn't. So yeah, wear a goddamn mask and be pretty vigilant about it it's not a fun thing to have to use a term that i don't uh ever use i i feel that i'm considerably blessed my father is in his mid 80s and he contracted covid19 and you know it was a completely different situation than even what you went through it was very similar but at the same time the effects are so drastically different person to person the acknowledgement needs to be taken very seriously it's not a fucking joke it's it's not a liberal hoax. It's not a commie lie. It's not a China virus, which is just so fucking disturbing that a world leader, yet alone ours, the United States of America, and I presume most of our audience is American, but, you know, please, for everyone out there that sympathizes with us that doesn't live in this country, he's not your leader. If you are in England, though, you've got Boris Johnson, and fuck that guy equally. Pretty much the same guy... Maybe better hair? Not really, though. It, it still kind of sucks. It's it's just baffling. Uh, for one, the xenophobia this is causing, and two, the fact that people are so fucking stupid that they have no concept that this is real. And it's, what, more people have died because of COVID-19 under Donald Trump than in the Vietnam War because of Nixon. I mean, you can make jokes, and it's not even jokes. You can call Obama a war criminal all you want to. More Americans have died under Donald Trump because of COVID-19, and this could have been avoided. He has murdered more Americans than fucking any other president. And that's just, that's my rant. The show tonight has nothing to do with this whatsoever. But there, there's a time and a place, and the beginning of the year is the time and the place, because COVID is getting worse. Alexander Nash, I mean, you've, you've not been on the show more than twice since November. It's not like... You get COVID and you can just lay down. It's not like you can take a nap and things are going to get better. You've been sick. You've you've been really not under the weather. You've been, like, drastically ill. It's not a joke. And it's it's so bizarre how 
it just seems to not matter at all. It just, you know, I, I need to go out and be able to go to the bar. I just need to. God damn it, you don't. You <laughs> Be a self-contained alcoholic. Fuck. You can talk the sh- all the shit you want to about the economy and all this other stuff, but if we would just, for a brief bit, pay people to stay home and... I, I have a perfect solution. Oh, to that's it. communism, fella. Oh, Not you want to hear my, my communist idea? It's, it, this is a good communist idea. Well, how are we going to pay for that? Uh, COVID tax. What do you mean by that? Okay. Say you're buying a luxury good. This does not go for food. It does not go for Cigarettes, survival. Cigarettes, booze. PlayStation 5s? Attach an extra $5 that's charge genius. to it. I mean, I, I am about to light a cigarette and have a drink of alcohol right now. It would I there would be no complaint. I'm sure I would say under my breath, fucking cigarettes or blah blah blah. But I, I live in any town USA, which is a southern state, where cigarettes hardly cost anything. There are already places in the United States where a pack of Newport is like twenty fucking dollars. It's up there in price. I, I a few years ago went to Australia and I thought it was genius that cigarettes are ridiculously expensive over there, as is alcohol. Because all of it's taxed. So when your stupid ass gets lung cancer from smoking cigarettes your entire life, you pretty much paid for it and paid back into it as to where in the United States you're laughed at if you don't brag about your 90-plus hour weeks under slave labor for whatever dumb corporation you decided to sell your soul to. It doesn't make sense. It's just that simple. You like you just tax some luxury goods. You tax an extra couple of bucks to things that people don't actually have to have to live right now, and you can pay to like keep people at home. You can. This is all amazingly avoidable but no one wants to do it because at the end of the day what they don't want is that well i don't want to have to i don't want to have to actually think about stuff and maybe think about other people and sit at home and be around my wife that i fucking hate or whatever the fuck the problem is that's truthfully what it is it's just at the end of the day i don't want to have to change my life in any way shape or form to help anyone else out can you do it for six months? Well, fuck that. No, we did it for six months. No, you didn't. You didn't do it for six months. You did it for two months and then bitched about it the entire time. And then, well, it's over. Let's get back to normal. And everybody just started opening everything back up. The thing is, people didn't even care about each other. The whole entire point was, in theory, no, I definitely care about people, but I really need to get a haircut, and I think it's really dumb that I can't go to karaoke this weekend. I have things to do. Aren't you aware that I have a life, and it's so important, my existence bearing on top of millions and millions of others on this planet that we are all equals on, my little meaningless existence, it means so much. Look at me grasp at fucking straws. It's people that, in theory, care and get on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and say that they care. But when it comes down to staying the fuck home, they manage to not be able to do that. But you can't say you care. You know, you have these people that say, well, I I just don't stand, I can't have abortions. I'm completely against that. So why don't you stay home? Why don't you wear a mask? If you're so fucking for life, why can't you even stay home? These same people that are... They're not actively doing it, but the same people that picket and bomb abortion clinics are the same fucking assholes that are doing these marches to not wear masks. Pick a side and stick with it. Do you care about life? If you do, I I please beg our audience, anyone listening, wear a mask. Please, social distance. Stop going out. You don't need to go to the bar. You don't need a haircut. It's fine. Everybody needs a grizzly Adam phase. It's hip. It's cool. Grow a beard. Stop going out!
to address the situation of how I got it, so it doesn't seem like I'm being incredibly hypocritical here, I came in contact with one person. We were vigilant. We were vigilant all year. Didn't get it. We didn't see anybody. We didn't see family, friends. We distanced. We wore masks. And my mother-in-law came over for an like, what, 20 minutes to an hour one day, and she just happened to have had it and didn't know it. One person. I came in contact with one fucking person, and we all got it. She gave it to all of us. So, I'm not dead yet. We've been able to replace Hank seven times on this show, but I don't know if we could ever replace I, Alexander Nash. And it is with, with great esteem that we have you back, because tonight's subject matter is something... I guess I could have done on my own, but it would be a, a sprawling three-hour thing, I, and I don't think anyone on their own... <laughs> yes, as you all have figured out now, my entire job on this whole podcast for years now is, reel this motherfucker in. You actually got a degree for Hank Raining from the uh, Anytown USA University. It's a very hard job, and in this essence, I don't think there's anybody that could really talk about this movie on their own and it it, it be you know a short-winded thing. This movie changed horror. It changed Italian horror. It changed the giallo subgenre. It, it, it really just changed everything, even when it came down to how a movie was scored. It changed barrier roles with masculine and feminine actors. It it just was a powerhouse. This movie changed the 1970s, and it certainly changed the career of everyone involved. Talking about Dario Argento's Profundo Rosso! Sweet bass. Lots of sweet, jazzy bass. I think uh, it was always billed as the Gialli to end all Gialli. And it certainly is, uh, even though Dario Gento went on to make two more really fantastic Giallo films, Tenebrae and Opera. Opera, we've even discussed recently, arguably maybe the last good slasher and Giallo film uh, ever. I mean, what, 1988-89? All Argento has done his entire career has changed pretty much the face of what he has touched until he started making really bad praying mantis movies with with Rutger Hauer. And that's unfortunate, but that's we're we're, we're hopefully going to focus on the glory of Deep Red tonight. And to one of the focal points, uh, the original idea of the show is we wanted to talk about Daria Nicolodi, who passed away in November of this year and this is the beginning of her, you know, wonderful career with Dario Argento, and I mean, I think both of them together made some of the the greatest horror art that any of us could ever discuss and watch and view and see. But there's not a whole lot we can get into when it comes down to the subject matter of Deep Red outside of Dario Nicolotti is in it, and there's a nice story of how her and Dario dated and then divorced. <laughs> well, this is really Asia's story. It's her, uh, I guess you could call it um, How I Met Your Mother for Asia Argento. As far as Jolly go, this is my favorite out of all of them because um, I am not the biggest fan of Giallo films. I like a good handful of them. I am not obsessed with them like a lot of people are with Italian cinema because all get a little samey for me. They all kind of start running together. Like, um, I know Torso is a big deal for a lot of people. I don't like Torso that much. I love the trailer for Torso. Torso, um, Torso! Sitting down and actually watching Torso, though, it's ju it's pretty boring overall. Torso's a really cheap movie, though. I mean, you gotta take that into consideration. But, I mean, you have, like, 
the core beginning years with Mario Bava, and then the Animal Trilogy comes forward with Dario Argento, and Fulci, everybody, ripped off that formula, and everyone started even using animal names. By the time Deep Red came along, it was Torso. It was that beaten-to-death giallo, and that's I think a lot of American import is what got shoved in your face is the really shitty stuff, and now, like, Vinegar Syndrome has those forgotten gialli box sets, and you've got, like, the, the French sex murders, and they're not really forgotten, but all the movies have this one, or not one, multiple things in common that go directly back to either Mario Bava or, I think, what... Argento had to offer with Bird with the Crystal Plumage, and you've got the kind of uh, uh, English-speaking desperado that doesn't fit in with people, and an animosity with uh, not just women, but uh, feminine and femin femininity, femininity in nature, and that was taken and exploited to the extent by like seventy-five, seventy-six. It's like fuck. Torso, like you said, is great in theory. <laughs> then you sit down and watch it, but I mean, there's. It's got some good so sequences much. in it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't think it's a piece of shit or anything. It's just, it doesn't really it's do It's not a it piece of I shit, mean, but it's not, you know, a polished like turd Blood, either. Black, Lace, it has some payoff. It has, it like, it's got some dividends. But, like, Torso, it's got, like, one or two scenes and, like, okay, that really works. And then there's a lot of just shit added on there to pad it out. And a lot of Giallo films have a lot of fucking padding. And even Deep Red has some padding, but the padding in Deep Red really works. Uh, Bird with a Crystal Plumage, it's it's pretty good. It's all right. Four Flies on Grey Velvet, okay. Um, Cat on Ninetales, not a huge fan of. I find that one to be pretty boring. But Deep Red takes all the elements and just makes it perfect. That movie fucking hums, man. It just, everything melts together just in an amazing way. And I think the score really is what, brings it all together and just melts into this wonderful piece de resistance. I think especially mentioning Cat and Nine Tails, one of the most important things that comes with that is this is our introduction to Argento's use of, before the Steadicam, a PO vision shot, a point of view shot of the killer. This is something I think that Argento borrows from Michael Powell's Peeping Tom, which probably started the idea of the camera and the, the eye of the killer, but Deep Red is where this is perfected, and Deep Red is where this comes to a point of history, because you can look at something like Michael Powell's film, and then you can look at something like Cat of Nine Tales. It's visible, but Deep Red is where John Carpenter got that whole thing for Michael Myers' vision. And you can't argue. I mean, I don't care what IMDb fact you might be able to find. No, he stole it from that. That's where it came from, and it's where everyone since has stolen the idea of using a POV killer shot. Deep Red perfected it. And Peeping Tom, I recently discussed on a Thanksgiving episode, 13 Movies to Die For. I think it's like 17 movies, actually. But who the fuck's counting? I wasn't, clearly. The whole point and the... Beauty of that movie is being almost a giallo officiato and the sleazy, horny nastiness of it. Well, there's a certain amount of voyeurism with um, when you, especially when you use the POV camera angle, where it really puts you in. I hate to interrupt the, you, but don't you the feel driver's seat. well? Okay, the, see, you were saying the the driver's seat, and I, I, I hate to interrupt you again, but sometimes don't you feel when you're exposed to the POV and the killer shot that it's almost it's almost like you're being taken over. It's almost like you're being forced to experience something. You're being put into the position of experiencing 
committing a murder. Now, whether you are comfortable with that or not, uh, I mean, that's down to your own psyche. But, I mean... Well, that's the beauty of Deep Red, because I don't think uh, even a conventional, let's just say Ted Bundy sat down and watched this movie, I don't even think a conventional murderer would be okay with it, because most of these deaths are so sinister that it, it takes you aback, and most of them are so relative to emotions that you can feel like chipping your tooth, that you can really... Cringe. I like to call paper cut uh, murders uh, because it's something that you can all like everyone could really empathize empath, empathize with. It's something that you personally could feel because everybody has gotten a paper cut. Everybody has maybe hit their tooth on something really hard before. It's a pain that you can really experience for yourself and then in deep red it amplifies that pain into a, a ridiculous almost slapstick level and i think this is really a melding point for argento i mean the animal trilogy was almost specifically giallo and it was very very crime based and it it followed a very stereotypical format and here is really the first almost supernatural essence that begins and every goddamn review you hear of deep red brings this up this is where it began, this is blah blah blah, and you've got the whole psychic point. But what Argento was representing, in my opinion here, using that, I think, was somebody that was coming out of like a Sigmund Freud mindset into a Carl Jung mindset, and he hadn't really developed a lot of the ideas that he would later use, which are really uh, from Daria Nicolodi, and that's where the fear of Suspiria came from is it was a story that her grandmother, I believe, would tell her about this this witch's school that she had attended. Or it was a ballet school that happened to be hosted by people that also taught black magic. And Dario thought it was terrifying. That's a whole complete different story um, than, than what melds in, into this situation. And some of the emotion and some of the purity in, I think, Deep Red comes down to the fact that no one... No one was incredibly familiar with what they were doing. Dario Argento was moving into new territory. He was returning to horror that he had done uh, a film in 1972 and 1971 and then had made a non-horror picture and it was a flop. It, it just it didn't go anywhere. It didn't do anything for him or his career. And Deep Red was billed massively in Italy as the return to terror for Dario Argento. And people were accustomed to his idea of Giallo, which had a, a different flavor and twist than guys like Mario Bava. It was a little bit more sexual, and there was a lot more gender reversals. I mean, like uh, Four Flies on Grey Velvet and Cat and Nine Tails have a, a very strange representation. And I say strange in the idea of what gender roles would be like in the early 70s in Italian film. Kind of groundbreaking, different ideas and 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 really it was just reversing the roles of male and female and then you come to deep red and i don't know it's just immaculate the way it's presented i don't care what cut you watch you can watch the the two hour and whatever minute version or the one hour and 47 minute version it's great it's it's something that i dare say is perfect i think it's one of the greatest thrillers one of the greatest horror movies art films i don't care what genre you put it into it's fucking pretty good it's, Pretty good. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. Well, not only that, like what Dario really did well, especially with like so much the POV camera, is he really lets you enter the mind of the killer on this one because there's so much footage of the killer and the uh, almost like the uh, the iconography of what makes the killer the killer. As um, you see the black leather gloves 
just hovering over this pile of what could be described as almost memories, these like childhood items, these baby dolls, all these different things that kind of they, they add up into really kind of giving you an idea of what the, the motive is for this killer, while at the same time not giving you that much information at all. Because even with my first viewing of Deep Red, like a shit ton of years ago, 30-something years ago at this point, once the, there's a reveal of the killer, I was just like, what? Really? This person had one scene. How the fuck was I supposed to figure this shit out? I mean, he gives you all the information without giving you any information all at the same time. Well, the even more insulting thing, I think when you realize this years later watching Deep Red, you almost feel betrayed. You feel like you've been slapped in the face by Dario Argento because in the first, like, fucking eight minutes of the movie, they show you who the killer is. You you 100% get to see the killer, and you have to live... And again, goddamn, I have to reference one of my solo shows. I was talking about Spider a few weeks ago, a movie that is presented 100% through the eyes of uh, a mentally incapacitated person. You get to see who the killer is right off the bat when it comes to Deep Red, but you are going through David Hemmings. You're going through his character the entire time, Marcus Daly. He sees who the killer is in the reflection and a mirror at the beginning of the movie, and so do you. Slow it the fuck down. Get your Blu-ray player and, and put that through that super slow speeding. You'll see it. It's available for absolutely everyone. And as the movie progresses, once you've seen it, and this is one of those things that's rewatchability is insane. You can continuously watch Deep Red. You'll notice every time, God damn, it's right there. It's in your face the entirety of the movie. And one of the things that I think makes it such a spectacular experience is the almost non-linear storytelling. There is a lot of things that you don't need to know that are presented to you. There is a lot of fluff that is presented to you. There's there's a lot of beauty because it's Dario Gento and he's, he's spectacular. He's one of the greatest photographers of all time. He's, he's one of the greatest directors of all time. And you see the format and you see it over and over and over again and you see different versions of it and different edits of it. And and it's it's like a waterfall every time. It's like just the most gorgeous thing you've ever seen. And it's it it's funny. Deep Red is constantly spoken about. Everybody talks about it. Chaz Ballin named his magazine after it. And still, it just doesn't seem like anyone appreciates it or sees Deep Red enough. Like it's if it's not gushed about, it's just kind of like, eh, Deep Red, Dario Argento made better movies than that. There's also Argento's fascination with art history, because you have like the, the reference at the, the beginning of the film to uh, Hopper's Nighthawks at the Diner. Which was, again, that's Daria Nicolotti and a lot of uh, representation of, of her melding with Dario Argento and where a lot of her art came forward. And I, I mean, I, I might be misspeaking here, but I personally feel... Dario Argento made the best art with Daria Nicolodi. I oh, he think. sucked after she was gone. I mean, that's <laughs> that's really like that to the be all and end of it. After they kind of split up, he that's when he really kind of started to fall at the deep end as far she, as directing. She was goes. what the shining star was that kept them together, and I think even in this essence, a lot of these these subtle things that make the movie because none of that's real. You've got that, and it's got a name. I don't remember the name at all because I'm a stupid American. But the beautiful statue that you've got those scenes between um, Carlo and Marcus standing, and the diner, the blue diner that was manufactured, literally just out of scrap wood. It was so beautiful that once they had finished filming, Italian officials asked, can we just keep it for a couple days? And they came to Argento and asked, just let's keep it open because people think it's real and it's beautiful. And they used it just because of his, based on Daria's, 
mindset in that. But that's one of the really fascinating things with Deep Red is uh, you've got these opening credit sequences and you're instantly thrown into a world that is like is like no other you are thrown into this weird flashback sequence and then once you were very first scene with david hemmings and then the whole instant with the psychic and the giant red curtains this doesn't look real it's so swooping and smooth and strange it's almost like this bizarre dreamlike experience and as you further and get into the deeper exposition and 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 acknowledgement of art that Argento had within the film, like the blue diner and the, 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 the hopper sequences that, and there's, there's even another scene in the bar where you can see that people are set to look like hopper paintings, that they're just, none of the reality is real. The streets are empty. The world is empty. We are instantly injected into a dream world, I guess is where I'm And that's going. what I was kind of trying to reference is, especially with like the, the hopper influence and when you tie that in with a goblin score, that very jazzy score, and the fact that Marcus is basically a jazz pianist, it's this very much a reference to an imagined past of like 1930s America or like Depression era America, where you have the jazz, you have the the, the men in uh, fedora hats, and you just have that kind of the cigarette smokiness, and that's really a thread throughout the entire film and what the like I see is one of the big core influences of the, the film in itself is just this imagined reality, the the beautification of depression era America. Because I mean if you go through all that shit well, like, it's a Humphrey Bogart movie, essentially. It's oh, just yeah. it's just the most reversed but role. It's that because... fake reality of what that shit was. It's not what actually was going on. It's the 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 the, the, the like um the very painterly depiction of it like it's norman rockwell but even to impose on that idea it's the fact that it is a detective story it is like a a dirty humphrey bogart story but it's completely reversed because marcus daly and I, I, i it's so hard sometimes treading and not saying offensive things and knowing where you're even trying to take it to but the character of marcus daly is portrayed as an incredibly effeminate character as to where Gianna Breezy, played by Daria Nicolodi, is the masculine Humphrey Bogart, chain-smoking badass. The glory of it is even down to the scene where they're doing the arm wrestling, which they did like 70 takes that it had to be perfect between Daria and David Hemmings because... It's a total off-the-table el- off elbow cheat. But at the same time, his complaining nonstop shows you these, this whole reversal, and it's almost a fight the entire movie until she saves him, burn, pulling him from a burning fire, and that's where it ceases. That's where finally this back and forth ends, and you have this kind of like omnious sexual vibe. You've got a scene where Hemmings and his character Marcus is putting his clothes back on, and Gianna's in the room. Did they fuck? Who cares? There's a lot of almost child, like a child watching. And I think the See, way I never took their um, I never took their relationship as being particularly romantic. I, I take it as being hyper um, sexual in a way, but that's almost like a, it's more of sexual tension and never like actual overt sexuality. I always felt what you were presented with especially Marcus and Gianna on screen is almost what a child would see. And what we don't know the entire movie, spoilers by the way, is that little snippet you see in the opening, uh, the, the opening credits is a memory of one of the lead characters. Well, I guess that's a lie. It's not a lead character. 
But it's a memory of the killer, and all of this reverts back to childhood, and you've got this, like, schoolyard action between Marcus and Gianna, that all they're doing is kicking each other's shins, all they're doing is rubbing dirt in each other's wounds. It's not necessarily sexual, but I think there there's a long-winded theory that a lot of people have that the Marcus character is a representation of being a closeted homosexual, which I think is baffling because... Hello, Carlo. <laughs> There's actual character for that in the fucking movie. I don't think there was an over-impending imp- imp- nature of Marcus being that way. I think the point was something that was really astounding and different in Italian cinema, especially for the time, was Dari Nicolodi's character, and it was new wave feminism. It, w- it was something that was not acknowledged, having a strong female lead that didn't take her clothes off, doesn't do anything sexual throughout the entire movie. Unfortunately, we couldn't agree with this before the show. She either dies or just gets completely maimed and brutalized. But regardless, doesn't make it to the end of the movie. But for the most part, she is the masculine character. She is the, you know, private dick that is solving it. If you really like get down to the nitty gritty of it, the only scenes of sexuality are between Carlo and his transgender girlfriend that's the only scenes where there's indicate really any kind of like sexual activity is going on with them uh, that that's something that i think is really fascinating when it comes down to argento as a director and uh, it again this is something that's hard to talk about and say because you don't want to offend people but certainly argento seemed especially in the 70s and 80s to have a fascination with homosexuality and he had a lot of gay characters and in deep red you have the representation that Carlo is, um, I, I won't say the quote, but you know, I'm I'm just a gay drunk, and he is. You 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 get the pseudo understanding. Oh well, that's why he's a drunk. He doesn't want to accept the fact that he's a homosexual. And you are shown their lover, and the lover in the film is is literally just uh, uh the magic of film. Dario Argento hired a female. And they just drew a mustache, and that was the whole point of trying to not necessarily confuse the audience, but even to the extent that, you know, Argento is the masked killer himself. It's him doing the work. It's just the trickery of camera. It's trying to present something to you that might not have a deeper meaning that a lot of people want it to have. And in this essence, literally with Deep Red, it was a female. It was a female that was playing... This character, and there's not really a gender or a, an identity put on the character outside of a, a very faint mustache. And later on in his career, Argento would do the same thing using an actual transgender actor to do a similar role. And it's, to me, why I think it's fascinating is it's because it's never really touched upon later in his career, but especially in this era in Italy and, and the world. It was just people being hunted and picked down and just absolutely taken away because their sexuality didn't meet somebody else's criteria. And I think it's really daring of Argento to represent it, but I think a lot of the ways he represented it was damning because even in this essence, Carlo... You, you're you made to believe Carlo's just a drunk and can't be successful for most of the movie because he thinks he's a drunk loser and he's gay and that he won't be accepted. Then you finally, at the end, it's like, oh, it's not just because of that. It's because your mom's the fucking killer. Spoiler. And you've been helping her the entire time. Well, I mean, th- I think that's the, the real twist of it at the end because, I mean, kind of a lesser film would keep Carlo as the killer, the hopeless homosexual who's, uh, like, so depraved that he just turned to murder. But in actuality, 
he's just a guy trying to help out his mother, who is the true killer, who is the true psychopath. So did, did he not do any of them? None of the murders yeah, I are I think him. he stabs, um, I'm not 100% clear, but I think he stabs Daria. Yeah, that's what um, I thought at the end of the movie. But just to protect his mother, but she's done all the murders. And they're all to protect herself because she didn't want to go back to the loony bin. And at this point, she's somewhat trying, like, Carlo has always been trying to protect his mother this whole time. He's the one who's been trying to help cover it up to a certain extent, but he's not actually committing the murders. Just to get back to the artistry of the film in itself, this is also the first time that Argento used Goblin, and it's also one of the most effective scores, I think, in film history. It is one of my favorite scores of all time. Um, Just the fucking... Just the bass. The bass alone... Like, like, get me through any goddamn day. The bass and all the songs. And it just really pulls you through the entire film. And it can go from jazzy and calm all the way into just chaos. And it's such a better score than Suspiria. I don't care what anybody says. Really, that's what kind of wraps the whole thing in a package and ties everything together. Even down to the character of Marcus, who, again, is a jazz pianist and it kind of almost reflects his mindset as when he's being a sleuth like the score that's going through his head as he's investigating all these uh, these murders and crimes oh carlo also is a pianist and i think that's something but he plays for money he doesn't play for art Because David Hemmings is the bourgeois. You know, he doesn't have to to worry about some of the things. And again, this is a theory and a theme that is present in, I think, most of Argento's work going into the 1990s. Even things like Stendhal Syndrome, you have a lot of class warfare. And suddenly he just, I don't know, he became disinterested in the entire idea of it. The Hemmings character himself, uh, the, the whole bumbling loser identity, I mean, he's a fucking loser. It doesn't matter that he might get the girl and things are going well. Nothing he does manages to work out, and you're rooting but somewhat suspecting Gianna the entire time. You've got the Daria Nicolodi character, and you you get to the point where you can't trust anyone. It's the ultimate game of Clue when it comes to Deep Red. And if you've never seen the film, the very first time you watch it, I think what causes some of the greatest effect is not knowing what's going on. And any other Argento movie has the same suspense and the same factor. This just manages to, I've seen this movie exaggerating 130 times. Every time I watch it, it's still, when you get to that final unveiling sequence, um, I know that I did this. when, When did don't look now come out? That's 76. I think. It's very it's it's the same feeling when you get to the end of Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now and you get that unveiling and it's like oh it was in my face the whole time. See to me the the big red herring throughout the entire film not on the first viewing because the first viewing I'm just kind of letting it wash over me but subsequent viewings after that was the uh, the the eyeliner because if you notice so many characters start showing up a lot of the female characters show up including Daria with very thick black eyeliner and you can see like um during the montages of the killer preparing preparing to commit the murders, putting on that thick, heavy black eyeliner. And that's the one where you keep encountering characters as they come along like, huh, wearing a lot of dark eyeliner there. Could this be the killer? Carlo's um, mistress, if you want to call, uh, call her that, dark eyeliner. Which one of these people is going to end up being the killer? And it's just, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to kind of add to the overall pastiche of the entire thing of just 
layers, adding all these different layers. Because again, as I was discussing before, the uh, the montage of the uh, the killer's items that that they're mulling over before they commit the murders, none of that really makes any sense on the first viewing. And then again, subsequent viewings, you can start piecing these things together that some sort of childhood trauma, some sort of obsession with childhood, some sort of obsession with feminine articles. Um, well, you've got this... that wacky doll sequence where the professor is killed, and I think that's one of the like most batshit crazy sequences in the movie, uh, because you've been exposed at this point to a lot of bizarre imagery. And then finally you've got this this character that's been in the film since the very first scene, and this like weird animatronic doll just like runs up on him. With, like, a knife, and, you know, it's coming at him. There's no explanation. It's the most frightening fucking thing in film history, by the way. But you don't want any explanation for it. All of a sudden, there's a weird robot doll running at him, and he crushes its head, and it falls apart, and it's all over with. And you don't ever go back and wonder, well, what, what... Since when did the killer have weird dolls? This was never a theme or a ploy. Or... No, 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 well, I mean, like, in the, uh, the psychic's house, or is it... No, the chick who wrote the book, not the psychic. The chick who wrote the book, who has the uh, the the birds, there's the the hung baby doll, and then at the end there's the the um, all these childhood items, and even the the the, uh, the drawings of a child that are all kind of pointing to Carlo being the killer. Well, that uh, a lot of those pieces come from a, a massively deleted sequences. I mean, there's the there's a version of this movie that has 22 minutes that you can find, and most of those sequences are. Marcus and Gianna, they are joke sequences, laugh sequences, fun, they're humorous, there's a little bit of a, a love story between them, and then you have this whole thing that was a part of the script that, I don't know if it was shot, I think most of it was omitted and just did not make it to the final filming sequences, but the House of Screaming Children, the House of Crying Children, I don't translate Italian very well, but there was a whole point and a whole subplot of the movie that dived much deeper into the childhood and the torture and the pain that Carlo went through and what happened to him and maybe other people and you somewhat get those sequences toward the end of the movie you've got that creepy little redhead girl from Fulci's The Beyond I should know her name by no. now it's not? You're incorrect. No? no? she is not in The Beyond. Oh my god, she it's is not her? She's in Demons, but she is not in The Beyond. It's okay. two different actresses. I knew she was in an Italian movie outside of this, so there are just two freakish little redhead girls out there that yes. look exactly the same. That's weird. So, but you've got, like, her whole character where she is, like, a weird sadomasochist that likes to get beaten by her dad and stab lizards to death, and you're introduced to the House of Screaming Children, or whatever the hell it was going to be called. What's funny is it really comes down to the point of the soundtrack, because none of this matters to the movie, and none of this really makes any difference outside of Marcus being able to find the the sketch on the wall and pull off the, the old paint and see that it was Carlo and, and he find out who the killer is. You've got this like 10 minutes of David Hemmings wandering through this Italian via. It's just a showcase Claudio Simonetti. Like this is one of the driving points now that the soundtrack is what drives the movie. And then when you transition to something like Suspiria, I agree 100% with I, Alexander Nash. Deep Red soundtrack is far superior. It is a better soundtrack. What makes Suspiria despite the technicolor dream that it is, it is the Goblin soundtrack. You have to recognize that. Goblin fucking carries it. Half of Deep Red is Goblin intro introducing, <laughs> carrying it. I mean, because this whole sequence I'm discussing 
It is pointless. It's that baseline, man. The doon 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 doon. That shit sells. That shit's so great. I mean, it just. You could just keep it going. That scene could be a David Lynch 14 minute sweeping the floor scene, and it's like, nah, it's good. Pump it up that It gives you gobble. a beat to follow, and it's a very uh, calming beat, but it also doesn't shy away from the fact that it also gets a little bit chaotic, a little bit crazy at times when, uh, you know, like when like more intense things happen in the film where it starts to stray off and become more experimental but it always goes back to that very calming bass riff throughout through all the songs on it where it's just it's like walking you through almost like a sleuth you know looking for clues and then boom the chaos hits and then like the the weird fucking turns and twists of the the, uh, electric organ that are playing and other things like that what i think really works is the fact that they went with a prog rock soundtrack that the original composer was a fella named uh i'm gonna say his name horribly giorgio gasolini and he was a jazz pianist and they were gonna go with a you know obscure kind of hip jazz pianist score and some of those songs remain in in the final product of it but this was the and you mentioned this earlier the first time that goblin and claudia it was claudia simonetti more than anything goblin is a band and i don't want to discredit anything but claudia simonetti really was the balls behind everything else and you know dario was interested in his work and he, he claudio himself was so excited he pumped out two or three songs in a night and came back to him and said i've got an idea and this is a different era when it comes to scoring films. It's not like he was able to sit down and watch the movie and then come up with what he was going to do. That he had a rough, he had an idea, he had some notes on paper from Dario Argento, and this is what he managed to produce. And it, I, I think is pivotal in the work of Dario Argento itself is how strong the soundtrack is for this movie. But it also gave him a soundtrack to direct by, so he could play yes. a lot of the songs on set and like kind of key visuals to what he was hearing and really kind of get into the groove himself of like, okay, yes. And the camera can do this as this plays. It it works so much for the benefit of the movie because even like the scene I keep going back to, it's just kind of clamoring. I mean, it's really David Hemmings fucking up. He gets knocked on the head by a piece of glass. He's not paying attention to anything he does. It's an anxiety writing scene because he's just scratching with his bare fingers at this paint on the wall and it makes you kind of go crazy like the chalkboard feeling in Jaws when Quint just runs his nails down the the chalkboard. It's awful and you're just writing and writing and writing but you've got this sweet ass, not even funk bass, just the smooth bass and then every now and again those high-pitched squeals that come from Claudio Simonetti's keyboards and all of it works together so perfectly that you can't help but feel... It, the movie doesn't focus necessarily on a supernatural aspect, but you can't help but feel that something's looking over your shoulder. You're watching this movie, and you still feel like you're a part of it. That's just... That's being a good photographer. This is really one of the... Apart from a lot of the stuff that Mario Bava was doing in Jalo a little bit earlier, this is the introduction of, like, kind of hyper-violence in Italian cinema to a certain extent, to where it's being incredibly gory and incredibly painful oriented sequences of... And it is, it's the 3M blood. It's the incredibly bright red cr- melted crayon blood used, but it, it still is effective. It's not even so much the blood. It's the violence that is handed to you with the blood. And I mean, uh, screenwriters... Because the sequences don't end. Because even with the original hatchet murder at the very beginning, it's very prolonged. 
and like there's originally there's a theory behind this actually and i i unfortunately i i wish i would have sourced this a little bit better because i don't recall the guy uh who who first came up with it but i'm almost certain it actually is uh from a deep red theory there's this whole theory that people specifically watch musicals because of the musical sequences so you buy a ticket to see a musical not for the movie but you're seeing it to see the musical numbers the same thing can apply to horror fans and something like deep red is one of the most primordial examples of that that it's the art of the murder yeah what makes this movie and makes not just the uh, technicolor future of dario argento is the fact of how amazing these murders are and that's to the extent that bernardino zapponi and dario argento the screenwriters just kind of hung out and got drunk trying to come up with effective ways to kill people and what makes it effective is what you had referenced earlier is just that ability to appeal to pain that you have felt you any person has have felt stubbing your toe chipping a tooth getting a paper cut something that you can identify broken with. glass cutting you um because not everybody can like experience that being hit with a fucking hatchet but you can experience getting cut on broken glass at, at the end of that murder where she's pushed through the the window to her ultimate demise and like you know impaled on the glass. So you have that murder, you also have the woman being boiled which was later stolen in Halloween 2, being boiled in a uh, bathtub and uh, the blisters forming on her face. Another thing that people can really like feel because you've been burned before. Almost everybody's had at least one second degree burn in their life. Not many people have had that many second degree like massive amounts of uh, second degree burns on their face enough to kill them. But uh, idea here, but there's also a incredibly clever uh, device using that scene of like the victim writing important information in the steam on the, the mirrored walls. And there's a, kind of brilliantly leaving all these clues throughout the film. Eventually you do get to like the, the knife murder, but also before the knife murder, you have the bashing of the teeth on the fireplace hearth. Um, just so much pain created by these murders. They aren't just one stab you're over. And that's one of my problems with something like, a movie like Scream, where it just ends up being stabby, stabby, and that just doesn't do that much for me. And in Deep Red, you don't have so much stabby, stabby as you have like a fucking hatchet, like deep, deep cuts, hacking cuts, and also being stabbed in the back of the neck with a knife, those sorts of things, like really emphasizing these murders as apart from like just getting stabbed in the stomach over and over again by a guy in a mask, yada, yada, yada. It's just uh, that doesn't do it for me, but this does. I mean, the murders really wash over you and really fucking affect you. I think a problem, though, is is the people that are involved. Somebody like Wes Craven, I don't think, is anywhere near as deep as Dario Argento. And when he cut, when Dario cuts you with a hatchet, well, Wes Craven doesn't really have any interest in violence. He never did. Those are almost like the genre demanded violence, and he just never really knew how to film well, the violence. That was, I mean, his his extent of violence, I think, was Sean S. Cunningham and, and David Hess, because really it was Fred Lincoln and David Hess that came up with most of the grotesque and awful things that happened on the set of Last House on the Left and them. He just didn't revel in it, and Argento revels in the violence. He creates well, that's what art I mean. with the violence. But you, when you get hit with a hatchet from Dario Argento, you feel it. When you get stabbed by Wes Craven, eh, it's a paper cut it really is it doesn't do anything of uh, any it's not effective and scream is it's a classy movie i'll say that it looks good it's got 
some really neat shock value, and it's got some interest for, for its era and what it did for horror. Sure, I'll, I'll play into that whole big bullshit. But when it comes down to actual f- violence, feeling it, I, I don't get off on this. I'm not sitting here jerking off excited over it. I'm horrified by it. That's one of the things that excites me when it comes to horror films is being absolutely turned off and, and, and pushed away uh, hating the violence because it is so effective. I can watch Argento's 75 Deep Red, and when those hatchet hits hit, even the very first sequence of violence, the very first time that Argento shoved someone's head through glass, it hurts. It's effective. And then when you get the bomb dropped on you and the pain of what Carlo has had to deal with and why he is the way he is and why things are so awful, that equally hurts just as much as, as getting hit with a hatchet scream the only person i actually feel bad for is when uh, matthew lillard's character gets the tv on his head he should have gotten away with it fuck it everyone deserves a good time i and that's that's sociopathic sure but fuck scream i mean there's nothing in any of these characters that i can relate to it's a bunch of rich kids that are killing because your mom fucked my dad so it's some Aaron Spelling TV show that somehow got really, really violent. You've done nothing for me. Go home. Stop it. And uh, I, I'm sure I just alienated a lot of people <laughs> that listen to this show. But fuck it. Deep Red, 1975. It's so much better. This is also a, a prime example of Argento's like fascination with uh, the killer in his films inevitably being killed either by accident or by art at the end of the film, because in Tenebrae, the killer is killed by art, by accident. She, um, and the killer in Deep Red, her uh, her necklace gets caught in the elevator and it decapitates her, killed by art, again, Don't you by too, accident. to an extent, feel, when it comes to Deep Red, that this is one of the first times that... Uh, the killer is the camera, essentially, in this film, and this is something that kind of goes back to Michael Powell's Peeping Tom and the first kind of ingenuitive use of... POV as the killer's eyes you don't have Carlo or his mother as a massive character but you do have the camera and and they are represented throughout the entire movie but you don't really have the essence of who the characters are I think really specifically with Deep Red Dario Argento managed to make and this is what his he even says my love affair is with the camera I, I don't like actors I don't like people I love the camera I think Deep Red he managed to make the camera the star I think you are so caught as, as as watching the movie, you're watching it and you're seeing these sequences and you understand that you're watching them through the killer's POV, but you well, never know who it is. It makes you complicit in the killings as well, though. It makes you like a voyeur as well as, again, being the killer. Whether or not you want to be a part of it, though, because personally, for me, I'm uncomfortable. No, you're being held hostage. Exactly. Argento is literally holding you hostage as, as the director going, oh, you're going to kill somebody. This is what it's like. Well, I just don't think, though, that you're, you're, you don't have a focus that this is Carlo and that this is his mom. You have a focus of what you're seeing to the point that it's you. And, and to me, I think there's a strong representation of Dario literally taking the physical camera to shoot the movie. And he made it a part of it and an eternal part of it and something like uh, opera. I think the, uh, I mean, there's some of those uh, amazing scenes where they're swooping through the opera house and they're following the birds where you're not really even a part of a character's point of view. You are part of the camera that there's something about Argento and his ability as a director. It transcends even something like the fourth wall. He, 
he manages to make the uh, the pieces of of making film you know the camera the the boom he makes all of this part of the art he makes it all so inclusatory that it's 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 breathtaking because you don't really know who you're watching is it carlo is it his mother or are you just the camera your other avatar in the film is usually somebody who's inept because again tenebrae mostly inept detectives deep red inept, inept detectives they're people who are being thrown into a situation they have no control over they are i've got to figure this out i can't leave the country because that's always a staple in these films well I just witnessed a murder and I can't leave the country, so now I have to protect myself as well as maybe try to solve this to clear my name. But it's always some weird thing, like I'm a pianist hanging out in Italy and I just can't leave the country. Like, how did you get into it? What are you doing in this country? No one particularly has an identity. And and, and this is something I've always thought was really intriguing with Argento. None of his characters seem to have identities and his movies don't ever really end there's an ending sequence and they stop but there's never a resolution there's never a this is the end we've solved it every single thing kind of just seeps into the other almost to the extent that you could say he's just remade the same movie over and over and over again well even when they solve it it's just like well i've kind of figured this out but they don't do anything about it something always (laughs) fucking like takes over and does it for them like like the elevator in this film like he doesn't do shit he figures out oh it was carla's mother and then she almost kills him but through an act of god is he saved so that like that character doesn't even become like you know the the uh the male hero of the film it's just he's he's saved by circumstance and chance more than anything and it happens very often in argento films just over and over and over again, like uh, even at the end of uh, Phenomena, it's a goddamn chimpanzee that saves the day. Somebody that we really adore takes, I think, heavily from Dario Argento, but have you ever noticed that with Richard Stanley? That even down to Dust Devil, that you've got that same kind of inept nature to the male lead, and especially with something like Dust Devil, you've got the husband that's traveling some from South Africa the entire time, and is just, you hate him, you, you want to see something bad happen to him, but your lead also with um, Zake's, I cannot say his name, South African actor that's also in that movie, he's <laughs> useless. Zake Smokai, Tony Award winning actor. Serpent and the Rainbow guy, he was also in Oz. Uh, he's useless the entire time that he even admits to letting his his people be abused and hurt by white South Africans because of uh, apartheid politics, and he didn't want to lose his job. There's so much, I think, directly from Dario Argento's Deep Red that has seeped into the Zeitgeist, one could say, of... of film culture i think argento has seeped into everything i mean i i really feel and i guess there is an argumentative nature over this stance that the michael myers vision and carpenter's halloween that's deep red i think it comes right from deep red i think everything steady cam i won't say the shining just because kubrick was a psychopath and he was the guy i don't say that offensively i don't mean to say he's a psychopath he was the good type of art psychopath and uh, he kind of adhered to his own style of things, so I don't really think Kubrick was influenced by anybody outside of maybe Orson Welles and uh, earlier filmmakers, you know, uh, 
Cecil B. DeMille, guys like that, Howard Hawks, um, guys like that. You look at how 70s American horror and the American slasher transformed, it was 100% off the Dario Argento's Giallo recipe. And there's no if and or buts. Bava created the genre. That's the history. Bava created it, Argento perfected it, and quit. He did three films in a, a two-year period, 1970 to 1971, and fucking stopped. He was done with it. He wanted to move on. Comes back in 1975 when essentially in the Italian market, giallos are dead. They aren't successful. Nobody cares. Nobody wants to see them anymore. And they'd already been completely destroyed. Guys like Lucio Fulci had made 50, well, not 50, but Fulci, Aristide Masichisi, all these dudes, all of them had gone out of their way and had exploited the genre to the extent that there was nothing left to offer. Argento comes back literally in the dark of night, makes Deep Red. It was the giallo to finish all giallos. It's, it was not false advertising. And truly... I think this is rare on Death by DVD. It's a fucking perfect movie. I, I, It really, no matter what cut you watch, no matter how you see this, this is some of the most astounding and astonishing filmmaking. I mean, um, David Hemmings had made a film with Michelangelo Antonioni called Blow Up, and it's one of those pre-Giallo films. It's like one of the other movies that I was mentioning earlier in the show. It's one of those aficionados, you-need-to-see films. And his performance, I think was sort of an icon moving into something like Deep Red, and one of the reasons that Argento wanted to use him is knowing, I mean, especially if you've seen that film, he's not the hero. He He's incapable of being the hero, and you are given the most devastating example of a man being lackluster, I think, with Deep Red, and it was all set up previously because of everyone's work history, that everyone that was involved, everyone that came together, was perfect for one another. This is one of those examples of just a big bang. Every possible good thing that could happen came together and blew up, and it turned into a universe of... A beauty. I mean, to this day, I don't think there's any modern horror picture that can't thank Deep Red or Dario Argento for Deep Red. Yeah, I mean, it has made its way through cinema over and over again. Argento is more influential than he will ever be given credit for, and for years he got no credit. I mean, I had to, for fuck's sakes, I had to buy bootlegs to watch any of these movies, and they were pretty much unavailable in America. If they were, they were available in uh, it's really been, what, the last 15, chopped up versions. I wouldn't even say 15 years. Maybe the last 10 or so you had companies when like... When DVD came along is when like uh, Anchor Bay started putting out Well, you uh, had Anchor DVDs Bay, of... but you had people like Bill Lustig's Blue Underground and guys like that were pumping them out. But until now, it's not really been widely accessible, I don't feel. It wasn't. I mean, like I had to get uh, Japanese uh, bootlegs of Japanese laser discs to get these films like fully unencumbered by censors and they really shaped my view of cinema and for the longest time no one knew what the fuck I was talking about Dario Argento until yeah probably about the last 20 years and then he really started getting his due the problem is at the same time he started to fucking suck he just started to suck and I think a lot of it is just he started buying his own hype and he just didn't understand what made him so great in the 70s he's just like I'm doing the thing right this is the thing you like. It's like, no, Dario, that's not. The murder shit is like second to what you were doing before of just being interested in being a filmmaker and what you can do with the camera, what you can do with music. And you lost interest in that and just started getting interested in just like 
like making fucking terrible slasher films and shit like that. It's just like he's just doing it for the paycheck, which is fine. I'm glad he's getting paid for once, but at the same time, it's just like I can't really discuss Argento with um, like-minded individuals or people who are learning about cinema and go, yeah, this guy, he's got a lot of great stuff. Stop at 1990, though, because all this shit sucks after that. I think something interesting when it comes down to Dario Argento and maybe things that... uh, It's hard to discuss because a lot of it, I guess, comes down to personal things, and when you're a fan of somebody for a long time, you you know delve into things, you look into their personal life. But I, I really think the years Dario was his most successful was with Dario Nicolodi. And there's a quote, and I'm paraphrasing here, from her that states, you know, he he's kind of kinetic and he is like Mercury. And when he's happy, it's movies like Deep Red. And when you're in love and when you're happy, you, you, you make beautiful things. And life is just incredibly awful <laughs> for for pretty much everyone and you have this concept and you look at artists that you enjoy and let's like I'll t- let's use Kurt Cobain you look at Kurt Cobain and uh, he made so much money he was selling gold records why would he shoot himself why would that happen well you know people fucking hate their lives that's just how it is and sometimes when you're incredibly emotional and you're happy you make good art sometimes when you're broken you make great art. I, Alexander Nash, and myself are both artists, and I've made some of the best art of my life when I've been kicked in the dick, and I've also made some of the best art of my life when I'm incredibly happy, and I can't tell you what's going to work. I don't know if happiness will make art or depression will make art. Sometimes it's just what happens, and the format and the the life and the, the way things were in 1973 to around 85, I think the type of artist Dario Argento was and where he was in his life, it was just one of those right place, right time things. I really think it had mostly to do with, with Dario Nicolodi. I think those two together were puzzle pieces that, for those 10, 10 11 years that they were married, were, were perfect. And they produced some of the most perfect examples of, of, I wouldn't just say counterculture. I wouldn't just say horror. I don't want to... And this is almost insulting to what we do say horror is is not a full genre and belittle it with horror. And I don't mean it that way, but I mean, I think these guys created shit that's up there with, with Monet, with Warhol. I think Suspiria and Deep Red are some of the two most important pieces of 20th century art that could, could ever be an example of the human race. We should put these on disc and send them to space so alien species can see Deep Red and know we're capable of amazing art. And that's Daria Nicolodi and Daria Argento. I mean, these these two people together, they were great. Well, the good thing about Argento, though, is you can put Deep Red on a disc and send it into space. You can also put Dracula 3D on a disc and show aliens that we can be perfect and we can also suck sometimes. So in a whole, in total, I think, Happy New Year's? Is that where we're at? This is the end. I think we're at the end of the show. It is a new year. Welcome to it, Death by DVD. We're not stopping. We can't stop. We actually have a whole thing like speed going on. There's a bomb next to the microphone. Never mind, this joke's bad. The ashtray is full, and the bottle is empty. Happy New Year's. Welcome to a whole new year 12 of Death by DVD. Deep Red. Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good.
on the next episode. Marvelous spaceman astronaut Hank, the world's greatest, is antique shopping when he comes across what he presumes to be a righteous vintage bomb. Upon taking it home and trying to clean it, Hank discovers it's not a bong at all, but the home of a 3,000-year-old genie named I. Alexander Nash. To grant Hank three wishes, Nash the genie has only one circumstance. Hank must do a podcast with the genie for the rest of his natural life. <laughs> Find out what happens on the next episode of I Dream of Death by DVD. This is a cry for help. I'm Linnea, and I like Death by DVD. It's a statement. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. Death by DVD is broadcast on top of Blue Crystal Sunshine Mountain, in Town, USA, with transmitters on top of the Empire State Building. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. Sabretooth, a movie all about clone prehistoric Sabretooth cats escaping from some sort of cloning facility that specializes in Sabretooth cats. Who plays the elite big game hunter called in to save the day? Is it David Keith or Keith David? Really, a movie like this, it could be either or. They've both had some low time. It's David Keith! Thanks for playing another riveting round of Keith David or David Keith. Join us next week, and now back to Death by DVD.